Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. DJ Dolan is a servant leader and former state and federal violent fugitive detective. He is a special operations team member, this turns social impact entrepreneur, coach, and consultant. After six years in the military and 16 years of serving in law enforcement, he transitioned his passion for public service and expertise in psychology, leadership, and human behavior from solving high-stakes life-or-death problems to now focusing on building system-level solutions to contribute to contributing lasting positive change. He was lucky enough to be able to leverage his passion, research, and experience in positive psychology, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral science, leadership development, and neuroscience to serve and lead on multiple purpose-driven teams with great teammates. But most importantly, he's the co-captain of Team Dolan with his wife, Jean, and little teammates, Sarah, Jack, and Charlie. Congratulations on the newest addition to the family, by the way. You're getting a fire team over there practically, DJ. Thank you for being over here. Thank you for spending the time. And you've got this incredible story. You have this incredible background. So it's been a while getting you on here. I've been following you for a while. So thank you for taking the time. I think everybody's going to love our conversation and thank you for taking the time. Marcus, the honor is mine and thank you for having me. No, it's incredible having you. And we were talking beforehand about the importance of having, I think today there's a lack of substance and a lot of conversations and a lot of interactions. People are distracted. People are bullshitting themselves with this thing that they call multitasking, which is just glorified inefficiency in my opinion. And I think that that's one of the things that we're lacking. And I think that that's an area that you're very strong in with the work that you're doing between working with companies, working with teams, speaking, coaching, and things like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Marcus. I think it's, you know, with a lot of conversations, people are, they're listening to respond, right? They're listening to respond with what they think they should say. What does this person want me to say? What will make me look good? What is the right answer? It's interesting. The podcast here is action, not words, but there's, you know, there's a lot of words that people try to say that they think they're supposed to. And and so, man, a deep conversation is a beautiful way to gain wisdom, to share wisdom, to, you know, lead you kind of on a path to the deeper knowing, which when I know about you, you know, I feel you share that addiction to curiosity that I have. So fired up to connect on an authentic level. Absolutely. And Octonon Verb is the name of the podcast, but sometimes the action is non-action. Sometimes the action is holding space, being present, listening. The word empathy, it's spelled like empty for a reason. I'm emptying myself of expectations. I'm emptying myself of trying to impress you with the soundbite or something that I know. And instead, I'm just trying to be there. And that connection alone, some of the best conversations that we have is when you just allow that person to speak or you give them something that leads them down to this path where they maybe discover something mid-sentence. It's like, wow, I didn't realize that that was out there. Or maybe as we discuss it, it's one of those things where you say it in a way to where they're like, wow, I've heard that many times, but the way that you said it or in the context of this conversation, now it really opens up a whole new possibility. And that's 
the whole reason why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, hundred percent. And what came up for me as you, you mentioned that was, I see a world where so many people trying to talk and scream and yell and be seen and be heard, and there's very few people that are actually are willing to listen or even know how to listen. And so I want to acknowledge you, Marcus, because you know clearly from your, your following and the impact you've had so far, and with you know the impact from the show alone, you're a great listener. Right. So leading by example in that way is, is great. Does that resonate with you, Marcus? It absolutely does. And like I said, if I'm speaking, I'm just repeating something that I think I already know. But if I listen, I have a much better opportunity to learn something or maybe see an angle that I didn't see. And that's where the real value comes in. So for the people that are listening, you have a powerful background between the military and then with law enforcement. Can you give us a little bit of background about what that is and tell us how that kind of led you to where you are now? Because as we were saying before we hit record, sometimes people think that if we're in the military or if even in law enforcement, they think that all our job to do is to kick in doors, pull weapons, yell clear, and that's what we do. But there's a lot more to it, especially when you're able to take those concepts and expand them into the civilian sector. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll back up a little further before entering the military, if that works. Unique background. I, I had the honor of being raised by kind of a tribe. A bunch of people contributed to kind of raising me, my Nana, my sisters, my aunts, uncles, family, you know, a bunch of people kind of contributed to that. Lucky for that. Always an athlete. I think at a young age, I found that I believe that at that moment, anyways, I believe that I was going to get kind of validation and love from doing well in sport, right? From performing. And so always was trying to be the best athlete I could be, the best leader I could be, try to perform in those ways, but still had probably this deep-seated belief about myself that I wasn't good enough to go to college or whatnot. And so my mentality back then was I'm going to serve in the military. That will help me, you know, go to college and ended up decent athlete in high school. I got some some scholarship offers for football. And so that changed the course for me. So competed in college football and rugby, Merrimack College up here north of Boston. And even at that time, I'm like, okay, I want to serve, right? So I got an internship with the Mass State Police up here. I interned for four years where I would do 10, 15 hours of ride-alongs a week. And I got hooked with that work and I really was drawn to it. So I competed for the four years. I was doing the state police internship for four years with the plan of then I was going to join the military after to give me a better shot of getting on the state police. And right before I left college, we had a critical incident that I was involved in you know, as an intern. And it involved the loss of life of some young children. And so it was a really challenging time, incident to go through it at that age with not kind of understanding the process of what happens when you go through a critical incident. And, but at the time, you know, like we talked about, I'm trying to be, I'm performing, right? I got to look good. I got to do the right thing, say the right thing. I got to be, you know, try to be this big, tough guy. And so that's what I said. I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was in college at the time. And it affected me, affected my sleep. I had nieces and nephews at the time. I didn't have kids, but I wake up thinking about my nieces and nephews and, and whatnot. And, but I just kept being a college athlete and not realizing that I could probably use some tools here to kind of navigate what I was experiencing. And as luck would have it or the flow of life would have it, I got a contract to, to box a heavyweight boxing team in Los Angeles, California after college. And so I, I said yes to that. And my whole family is like, what are you doing? My mentality is you get, you get one trip at this thing. So let's do it. Let's up and leave. And I never left the state before that. And so I drove up to California <laughs> and I had the honor of working with a sport and performance psychologist out there named Dr. Michael Gervais. He works with the Seahawks and some Olympians and great you know, addition to legend. And so he was starting out and he was just bringing mindfulness over to the sports sector and they put a lot of money into the program and team I was on. So all the athletes, we had access to Dr. Gervais when he was starting out. And so he was teaching us mindfulness and I'd never heard of it before. 
I was probably always a self-help guy. I liked Tony Robbins. I liked different, I was always looking ways to make myself better, but mindfulness is what really at that moment of my life, not realizing how important it was for me to learn that I learned it in the context of being a better athlete, but the skills now, as I reflect back, the skills that I learned were ones that not only made me a better boxer, a better athlete, but helped me navigate some of the stuff I didn't understand, the thoughts and emotions. So competed for a year, did well with the team. I was up for to push the contract on, but I see myself as serving. I want to serve. And I had a great experience here, great coaches, great overall experience. I was doing really well. I was offered another two or three year extension and I ended up returning to Massachusetts to continue to work in law enforcement. And I subsequently joined the U.S. Army National Guard at that moment with 20th Group. So my military training, I was in for about six years total. The majority of my career was training. I enlisted into the 20th Group. So I went to Fort Benning. I did my infantry training, advanced infantry training there, airborne school there. Airborne, air assault, and all this stuff all at one time, yeah. All the things. Oh, yeah. I was, you know, bing, bang, boom, got it all done. And at the time, I'm 25, probably 24, 25. And I then went into over to Fort Bragg and I had some great training there. I, you know, the pre-course for SFAS and then SFAS, where I actually was the honor graduate of SFAS. So that was a great experience. Don't pass over that too much. Tell us what that means to be the honorman in that group. Yeah. So, you know, it's about, I'm going to say it was 24 days, about a month out in the field and selection process for us, special forces, army special forces. And so there's physical components, there's team components, there's skills, performances. And so overall, the all said and done, you go through the program and cadre selects you, they don't select you. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get selected and was actually the honor graduate of the training. So they rate you in all different ways, but there's leadership, physical performance, there's skills performance with land navigation or whatnot. And being a kid from the city, learning a map was a big deal for me. So I was proud of that. But- <laughs> you, should be, you should be. When I was in elementary school, there were guys, they would put the map down and the person thought wherever they stood was north. So like you said, that's a whole other skill. It's like, there's a lot to that, guys. So that's why once you do unpack that, because that's a big thing. It's the cadre, but it's also your peers. There's a whole lot of dynamics that go into that opportunity for you to lead like that. It's not just enough to be a PT stud or have 300 on your PT score. It's like, no, you have to lead by example. You have to do it. And you're under some conditions that are challenging to say the least. Challenge is a good word. Absolutely, Marcus. And on that component, I've reflected about this on this a bunch. And I think what, and this is kind of how it's set up for me to, to live my life, my kind of philosophy now, and stems back to that. I think, yep, you're going to be a PT stud. You're going to do the right things and, and all that. But being a leader and, and positively influencing others is so much more than that. I mean, that's the price of admission. And so I think for me, I think why I was blessed to be named with that accolade was because of looking back on it, being a servant leader and looking left and looking right. And when I felt pain, rather than feeling it or wincing or whining, I looked left and right. And I said, how can I pick up my teammates and how can I help? You know, you're not supposed to do it, but when folks are getting lost at land nav and I see one of my battle buddies out there, like we cheer them on a little bit and try to help out a little bit and team events, same thing. I think the one specific story from that is I was one of the faster guys, and especially with rucking, I'm 6'5 and 230 pounds. So speed is not- Oh, you get that stride, man. That long stride. I'm 5'9. I'm over here just trying to go twice as fast to keep up with you. <laughs> and, that, and that's the thing, right? And I know I know nothing. I'm a new guy. They called it 18 x-ray and I went to college. I did some boxing professionally. And so I had some life experience, but I not in the military. So, and I knew that. And so my mentality is always, how can I learn from folks who are in and how can I help you of service and learn? And because I was you know, one of the faster guys, they would put me in the leadership position and on the transition rocks, you'd rock from event to event. And the cadre would always tell me, all right, move out as fast as you can. And I knew that if I did so, 
the last 10 or so guys, if they fall back more than however it was, 10, 15 meters, they're going to get kicked out. And if some of those guys are you know, ranger instructors and were great leaders and would be a great asset to the rank. So I didn't do it. So I, I set up a system where I'm like, okay, let's, if someone starts falling back, let's communicate up, let me know. And I'll, I'll tailor back a little bit. And, and I got a bunch of shit for it. I got smoked for it. I got all the things, but at the end of the day, you know, on the team events, we, we did really well. We were one team with one heartbeat. And it taught me a little bit of, okay, when your environment is pushing you or your environment is trying to persuade you to do X and it's against your values, move toward your values, even if you get smoked. And that's, you know, kind of the lesson I learned, I learned there and I, I wouldn't have done anything different, but I think that it came down to that really, Marcus, more than anything else is, in my opinion, the toughest person in the room, if they choose to be the kindest person, man, that's going to be a great room to be a part of. That's going to be a great room to be in. And that's the same with leadership. The most, the person with the most influence, if they're kind and they, and they genuinely care about other people and the well-being of everybody and, and the mission and whatnot, man, it's going to be a great organization, a team to be a part of. So as I reflect back, that's some lessons learned from that, that portion of the training. But kind of moving on from there, I ended up, didn't end up completing the course. I came back and went back to work with the state police. And I later went back to commission. I commissioned as an infantry officer. So explain the difference between commission and non-commission for people that may not be aware. Yeah, no problem. So enlisted officer, an NCO is going to be in the ranks of the military. And then the commissioned officers are going to be those who are you know, serving official leadership positions separate from the leadership positions of the non-commissioned officers. So the NCOs and the commissioned officers work together to create you know, the best environment for everybody to accomplish the mission. So the NCOs are going to be the boots on the ground. They have the genuine relationships with everybody. And the commissioned officers are generally going to be the nexus from the units on up, and they're going to handle administrative and the big picture. The NCOs and commission officers working together is what kind of can create teams. And the reason why I asked you to unpack that in addition to what your experience in the team leading up to that is because you get to have this a true 360 view of what's going on. If we're just an enlisted guy on the ground and it's like, we're doing the shit work and it sucks and we don't see any lieutenants over here doing stuff, it it can create this unnecessary friction. It can create this divide. And then there's also that part where you understand being a commission officer is like you're getting something handed down to you from leadership. Everything is siloed. Everything's sort of compartmentalized. Here's the marching orders. Let's go. And you may not even have the opportunity to say, why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. We fought so hard for this position. Why are we falling back now? Or there's no way we can take that hill. Why are we being told to do so? But understanding it from that leadership perspective, from the top down and from the down back up, allows you to influence up the chain of command, down the chain of command, leading by example, even that great opportunity that you found yourself in when we're holding the log or we're sucking on the PT course or whatever it is. If we look to the guy to our left or to our right, instead of making it about me, I make it about we. And I'm like, if I can focus on making this guy not be in as much pain, one, it takes me off of worrying about the adversity that I'm going through. It also helps him. And maybe he's going to help somebody else in the process, or he's going to help you if you're not a strong rucker or a strong runner or good in the boat or whatever it is. So all those things, if we are willing to invest and pour into those people, they can do the same thing for us. And oftentimes that leadership will save our ass on the times when we don't have the leadership capital, or we don't have the energy, or we don't have the resources necessary in that moment. And that's why it's so important to be able to put that out all the time, even when it's not as necessary as we may think it'll be at the moment. Oh, yeah. So much comes up, Marcus, as you talk. And I think that dynamic between the two different perspectives, that's true for 
businesses and organizations and teams. And it's that ability you mentioned before, empathy and empathy is so important, so important. And we'll talk about that definitely later, I'm sure. But, you know, be able to, to see through other people's eyes and see what the lens they're looking at the world through. And if you understand that, you can better understand them, you can communicate better and you can move on better. But, you know, what comes up for me is you have the mention of folks that are, if you work, you know, listed member and, and you're, why are they doing this and that? Or why aren't they here? The thing. And that's all they know at that moment. But if you have someone that's enlisted that becomes an officer or you have someone that's an officer that at least has that empathy eye that's like, okay, I want to really get it. Or I know that I know nothing. So let me learn from the people that do, that are doing it. I mean, that's when great things can happen. As commissioned officers, you're held to two standards, mission accomplishment, taking care of your people. And taking care of people, a lot of times is, is making decisions with their best interest at heart. And many times, Marcus, as you know, as a leader, the best interest decisions is very rarely the popular decision. It's the popular one. Like we need to keep security at, you know, 50%. So half the people need to be up, right? And and then the other, oh, why do we need this? And it's like, okay, but because when we do, we do. And, you know, whatever that is, well, maybe we, we can't get as much sleep as we want at this moment because X, Y, Z, we got to move on. So there's so much that goes into it. And I think the quality that can help folks on either side is that empathy is, okay, I know that it's upsetting me in this moment, but let me try to understand why they are making that decision or why the big picture. And there's no answer that might come up, but just asking that question over and over again is what's going to really help those relationships over time. And that can be on any battlefield. That could be in business. If talking about bosses' decisions or whatnot, let me try to understand where they're coming from because there's so much information that can be given to you at that point that can help kind of that relationship and the performance overall. It absolutely does. And again, the leadership decision, if you're in a senior management team or if you're even a C-suite executive or just a middle manager somewhere and you're having a CEO or you're having leadership tell you something, it's important, like you said, that we understand that mission, at least to an extent as how we should operate within those confines. Because if we don't, and then we have our team members saying, why are we doing this? Does it make any sense? And I understand people by nature, they buck change, like they just want it to be the way it was, make it simple. Why do we have these new parameters? Why do we have these new KPIs? Why do we have this new, whatever the newest gizmo is? And that's fine. But if we can own that, now we have that belief. And now they're going to, because we believe it, and they believe in us as a leader, they're going to believe this and they will go forward with it. But if we're that kind of leader, it's like, I don't know why we're doing this. This is stupid, guys, but we got to do it because that's what the boss said. Now, what am I doing? I'm breeding contempt. I'm separating. I'm unnecessarily creating a divide that doesn't even need to be there. If it's in the military, we weren't the ones that got to dictate necessarily what our orders were. But in the civilian sector, especially if you own a business or if you're a co-founder or if you're wanting to create your own business, it's all on you. You get to dictate what the next operation is. You get to decide what the war order is going to be. Having said that, there's still going to be those difficulties where it's like, listen, especially when we're building this thing up, it's going to take a lot of hours. And it's going to feel like a lot of monotonous, mindless kind of work to get this done. But that's part of it. And when we're in the company, when we have that same mission, if we can actually have that communication and that ability to, to be transparent or have empathy or just shut up and listen, we're usually trying to go the same direction. We're usually trying to win. We're usually trying to make the company win. We're usually trying to uphold the values and those ethos. But if we could step back for a second and have the Musashi idea of, all paths lead to the top of the mountain. We just have to be willing to say, where are these paths are diverging at this moment? Where are they going to converge on the way up? And can we do those things more quickly so that now everybody can buy in, believe, and put their hearts and their backs into this work as opposed to dragging their feet the whole time? Again, if we have a 25-mile ruck march with 50% of our body weight on us, we can bitch and moan all we want every step. 
but we're still going to have to do it. So in the long run, we're talking about, as you were saying, words, kind of behavioral therapy kind of idea. Why would I just simultaneously put on the brake when I'm trying to accelerate simultaneously? It, it makes it a lot harder than it needs to be if we're aware of it. Sometimes we're just not aware, especially in the heat of it. Absolutely, Marcus. And the best leaders I've found are the ones that communicate in a way where very rarely are people asking why or wondering why, because they start with why. They speak from that place of this is what it is. And even if they don't maybe technically agree with it in that moment, they know that they're doing the best they can with the information they have. And they're taking responsibility for it as they hand that down, that information down. Now, the two leaders that are scary are the ones that get influenced, but their main driving mental philosophy is to just blindly obey what I'm told and just set myself up for the future and try to take care of myself so my career is good. And if it works for me to help others under me, then I will. But if not, then I'm just going to shut up and do what I say and or blame upwards. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's dumb, but they're making me do it. You know, I think the best leaders are those who move toward values, regardless of the context. They're going to do what's in the best interest of the mission, their individuals, the team, especially when it's really challenging to do so. And especially if that means that they might lose their job or they might not get the promotion that they're trying to get because they're moving toward values. And I think at the end of the day, you fast forward in your life, you go to your last days and the titles you had or the accolades or the money or materials, none of it matters. I mean, I think what matters most is the relationships and making sure that you lived for something and you moved towards something meaningful and you inspired others. And after you leave, your inspiration and impact on others is going to be passed on and, and you're a good ancestor. But unfortunately, so many folks from a young age, I think, are taught that you need validation, you need to blindly obey, you're conditioned in certain ways. And, and that's what happens. And you know, unfortunate for folks who are serving under somebody who is driven that way, rather than serving for a servant leader, you're going to kind of bear the burden of that lack of consciously operating and making decisions based on values as opposed to kind of blind obedience or what you think you should or shouldn't do. I agree. And like you said, we have to follow principles and not people because people are fallible, but the concepts, the principle, the mission, the ethos, the creed, whatever it is, those are there for a reason so that we can fall back on them in the heat of chaos and now say, okay, this is sort of my drop-down menu. I'm not going to give up the infantryman's creed, right? Like I did not give up to hunger, to fatigue, to fear, to greater numbers. I go through the foe, through the fray, to the objective, regardless, to triumph overall. Like you have to have that in your DNA because if you wait until the moment that you're in it to make that decision, we're probably going to make a compromise decision because of fear, fatigue, anger, whatever it is. And if that's the time that we decide to make that, then it's probably not going to serve us or the team for that matter, whether it be in a combat zone or in a civilian sector where we're trying to make the right decision on this quarter's numbers we're trying to hit. Absolutely. We don't rise to the occasion. We fall back on our habits. Some people say training. I say habits. We fall back on our habits, but our habits are formed and reinforced by our training. So to that effect that you train a skill a certain way, you train something a certain way in a controlled environment. When the uncontrolled environment shows up, you're likely to perform in the way that you did leading up to that moment. That whole idea of I'm going to rise to the occasion. Or a lot of young lads are like, oh, if I get into a fight, I'll just do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do a spinning heel kick. And it's like, <laughs> have you have you trained the spinning heel kick the last six weeks? If not, probably, you're probably not going to do that. Um, probably not going to work. And when you throw your wild haymaker and you miss, what are you going to do? So that whole idea of we fall back in our habits. And I think this can work in both ways, right? I think if you have the mentality of, oh, I did great things back in the day. I was a pro athlete or I was an elite team or whatnot, that's great. It's on a resume and you should be proud of that. But I think what, as far as readiness today, what matters more than anything on your resume is what have you done the last eight weeks? 
action, not words. You know, so it can, it can kind of work in both ways there. Do you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like you're saying too, if we can give ourselves these micro adversities, this training, like you said, for eight weeks, it's like, listen, I need to make sure that my conditioning is where it needs to be. Or again, I'm probably not going to be able to do a spinning heel kick in the snow on the ice. So maybe I'll go for a different technique. Maybe I should consider the potential of jujitsu, or maybe I should consider the potential of working on my situational awareness so that I don't put myself in a position where I'm easily ambushed or easily victimized. So there's a lot of things, like you said, if we unpack, what is our end goal? What are we hoping to accomplish with that? Then that can actually inform us in a lot better ways. Guru and Asanto Bruce Lee's protege, my instructor, he says that um, the body that you have at 30 is not the body that you're going to have when you're 40, nor 50, nor 60. And he's in his 80s and he's still practicing martial arts every day, but he's had to learn to adapt himself to the need of what the situation is based on the skill set that he has in each art. Again, he's very humble. He has no need to prove anything to anybody. But for him, it's like, okay, well, what's something that's sustainable? For him, it's Salat, which is a Filipino martial art. He's not the tallest man in the world. He's already a third degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. He already has all these certifications in different forms of Kali, Muay Thai, of course, Bruce Lee's influence. So he's willing to absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and that what is specifically his own. And again, just like you said, whether it be the cadence that you're able to walk with your ruck because of your height or your ability to actually feel the fact that if you do go at your highest capacity, these guys back here are going to get smoked and they're going to get cut out. There is a reason behind everything that we're doing. And if we can keep that at the forefront of our mind, irrespective of what the environment is, and we're on the same team and we have the same mission, then it's really hard to go wrong if we're willing to be aware of it in the process. Absolutely. And with that too, I think it's important for folks to reflect on that the things on the resume and the roles you play and, and whatnot are just that, the roles. They're not your identity. They're not who you are. Because you'll you'll notice that a lot of folks, if they performed a certain way or had some certain role that they played that they were known for, and then now in this part of the journey, like your mentor, they no longer maybe are in that role or, or whatnot. A lot of folks, they'll end up avoiding doing anything or avoid pushing themselves or avoid adversity because they feel like they lost their sense of self. You see this a lot. Like I work with a lot of veterans and first responders and athletes who left the sport and have you know identified with the player, identified with the warrior, you know, in uniform. And who am I if I'm not those things? And so that's a challenging kind of place to be until you start realizing that that's a way you served at one way. And you can take the lessons that you learned in those moments and then apply them to, you know, serving in a different way. And that's better than okay. It's really powerful when folks start kind of doing that work and realizing how can I now show up and take what I've learned in this journey of mine to then pass on to others and do something else. Really challenging to do though, if you identify with that old role that you used to get validation for. And we were talking about this before as well. Like you said, that warrior in the field, there are certain skill sets that are required, but there are other softer skills that are involved in that as well. And so when we go into the civilian sector, when we put the fatigues up, we put the weapon down, but now we're here, those skills will still serve us. And it still gives us that multi-dimensional component, which is what a, a true warrior is. It's not just the person that can pick up a weapon or swing a sword. It's a person that can understand why I'm doing it, can understand strategy, can understand tactically what's going on here. And just like you said, people talk about veterans transitioning from the military to civilian sector, but it's the same thing again as an athlete. Like, this is my identity. I'm a provider. I'm a high performer. I'm a peak performer. I am a gold medalist. I'm a champion. That is great. That's what you were yesterday. What are you now? What are you willing to do now? And more importantly, what are you willing to do consistently tomorrow to get to what this thing is? 
And without that identity, without something to drive them, without some sort of mission, it's very easy for us. You were talking about our self-talk. You were talking about the mentality where sometimes in the military, you weren't necessarily trying to fill the muscle group. You were just trying to get through this thing. And it was just like a war of attrition. But when you have the ability to dictate what you're doing and saying, listen, I'm trying to make sure that I'm drinking this muscle. I'm not just trying to blow my knee out in the process of squatting 400 pounds. I'm trying to understand what's the end goal here. And you were saying how sometimes people will do these other things as a distraction from maybe this negative self-talk or perhaps even this anxiety that's been bumping into them all day, but they want to try to avoid that at any cost. So they try to override that with these other parts of physicality. Tell us a little bit about the way you look at that, the way that you unpack that and and why that's so important and the way it affects us day to day. Absolutely, Marcus. I'll, I'll tell you a story that kind of led me up to that relevation. So I joined the on the Mass State Police about halfway through my military career. And that's where my focus kind of shifted. That's why, you know, I was kind of focusing more on the responsibilities there and quickly going on our tactical team. It's a regional, it's now a full-time team, it's a you know, regional team in New England and high standard of training and a lot of great experience there. And I also got on as a detective attached to the U.S. Marshals uh, as a violent fugitive detective. And so they were both my dream jobs as far as when I was younger. I'm like, these are the jobs I want to go get the bad guy, you know, the high performing stuff and be held to a high standard. And so doing that work for a long time, I realized a few things and events happened in my life, personal life that made me kind of reflect on, on everything. And, but one that happened in my professional life, one of my supervisors from the violent fugitive unit ended up taking his life at some point. And that made me take a step back for the first time, Marcus, and really look at like, what's going on here in the warrior culture, what's going on here in, you know, law enforcement, military. And that's when I start, started looking at some of the statistics of things. And and I looked at it and I go, this guy was the toughest nails, servant leader, take care of his guys, locked up thousands of violent fugitives and high profile cases and great dad. And, you know, he had mentioned a couple of weeks before the event that the type of person I am, I'm like, you know, I'm curious. I'm asking him, hey, I have young kids, you know, you have older kids and what's your advice for me, you know, and eyes lit up and he said, don't miss anything. Go to the games, coach everything, everything. That's what matters more than anything else in the entire world. And so I saw how much Marcus, he loved his kids. And for me, at that moment in my life, I was ignorant when it came to suicide because I always thought I had that belief. The words in my mind was that it's selfish, right? If you have a family and you have kids, how could you do it? And at that moment, that's when my journey, I realized, wow, this person loved his family, loved his people, was a great leader, the whole thing. So that kind of really made me take a step back from being the performing, going out, doing the things, getting the bad guy, all the stuff to taking a step back and looking at things a little bit. And that's what got me kind of back on the journey of learning about psychology. And I reflected back on my own life. I said, why am I being able to perform at a high level on two call out teams? And my wife and I own and run businesses and I have young kids and I have good relationships and all these things. I'm like, how am I, how have I been able to do it? And I look at the statistics and military and law enforcement, first responder communities, you're three to five times more likely to take your own life than you ought to be killed in the line of duty which is wild considering we're looking for folks who murder people and violent people every month. I realize that we're three times more likely to die by suicide than that. And then the military is even worse, five to seven times more likely. And so I look at this and I want to understand it. What's going on here? When I did some self-reflection, I looked at way back when, the story I told you, working with Dr. Gervais and learning mindfulness and learning goal setting and visualization, kind of learn how to consciously operate my mind, my body. I now look at it and say, wait a minute, not only did that help me be a better athlete and help me throughout all this training and everything I've done up until that point and performing in missions and whatnot, it helped me deal with some stuff back then that I probably would have turned into something worse, right? If I hadn't. And it also made me think of, okay, more people need to learn these skills because 
elite law enforcement warrior culture, we do a great job of teaching humans how to override their natural biology to move away from threat. We teach them to move toward threat, to stress inoculate, to handle business, to use those hard skills that everyone loves talking about, right? That everyone wants to show off. The hard skills are great and the hard skills can solve problems when the stakes are high in the moment, but it's the soft skills that's going to make life worth living. It's the soft skills that's going to make you grow and be better, make deeper connections. You know, hard skills will solve the problem today. Soft skills will create a system that dissolves those problems later. And so that's what kind of made me go back to school. And so I went back, got my master's in positive psychology and I guess a certificate in neuroscience and science of happiness and mindfulness meditation facilitation. And I'm working towards a doctorate now. And so to answer kind of your question, I, I learned then any moment as humans, we're either moving toward what's important to us or moving away from or under the control of. In other words, we're hooked by some inner sensation, thought, emotion that we don't like, right? Whether it's anxiety or anger or frustration or being tired, whatever it is. So in any moment, we're either moving toward what's important to us or moving away from under the control of something we don't want to feel. And maybe look at folks in law enforcement, military, they sometimes will go to shoot or whatnot. And a lot of times we're not doing those things to move toward being healthier, more vital, or to be a better husband or father or friend or whatever it is, we're moving away from the anxiety we feel or the feeling of not being good enough or whatever it is that's inside of us that we don't understand, we're not conscious of. And so there's a unique difference if you think about in any given moment, you can be one or the other and you can transition one to the other. Like you can feel like I haven't worked out in two weeks, I'm going to beat myself up and go to the gym. And then that could be a driving factor. But at some moment when you learn mindfulness and you learn to be self-aware, you can say, oh, I see what's going on here. I was just moving away from that thought I didn't like or the feeling I'm like, but now that I'm here, let me move toward vitality. And on the physiological levels, things change. It's a little bit different. When you're moving toward what's important to you, it feels different. The outcome's different. When you're moving away from under the control of, you know, some oppressive thought or emotion you don't like, even though on camera it might look the same, it's a felt different experience. The outcome's going to be different over time. And what kind of my mission is, is to empower as many people as possible to learn how to consciously operate their system so that they're moving toward what's most important to them more so than them moving away from under the control of what they don't understand or don't kind of want to feel, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And like you said, it's the response versus react type idea. I talk about the adversity perception cycle. There's two different, there's adversity enters us or we face it. And if we see it as this negative thing, then what does it do? It disempowers us. It slows us down. Now we're negative about it. Now we're afraid of it. Now we hesitate. And then when adversity is introduced again, that loop continues. But if we see the adversity and say, this is my opportunity to level up. It's my opportunity to grow stronger. This is showing me something that I don't want to see. It's shining a light on my weakness. But if I'm willing to be humble enough to stay with this open wound, that's when I can learn so much, not only what caused, but what's inside there. And now I can look forward to this almost as an opportunity. So the next time I find it again, it just continues to perpetuate in that mentality. But again, it comes from that presence. Where am I right now? Do I feel like I'm out of control? Do I feel like a victim? Do I feel like the hero in this fable? Or do I feel like the person that can never get ahead? And then that dialogue just continues to unpack. And even like you were saying, the hormonal cascade that's released from both of those directions, there are going to be certain things from a physiological standpoint that are similar. But again, there's other ones that we can actually go towards voluntarily that are going to service, that is going to encourage us to continue to do this as opposed to doing it from a place of fear or obligation that we resent in the process. That's beautifully said. And the one thing that came up there as well is I noticed that 
folks who are going to go through, you know, if you're in the military or in law enforcement or first responder in general, you're constantly looking for what's wrong in the world so that you can go problem solve and fix it. So I need to fix the problem, fix the problem. And problem solving is so useful. However, it's important to understand the whole picture, right? Because for example, in a state, say there's 7 million people, 80% of those people are getting arrested a year. So 99% aren't. They're being great humans that are just living life and whatnot. But if you're only seeing that 1% over and over and over again, we have this part of our brain called the RAS, reticular activation system. Essentially, it's like the filter for our brain. And it has a few different categories that allows information in, into your consciousness. And you know, one of those things is your name. So if things are loud and it stops happening and someone says your name, you'll hear your name over all that, you know, other stimulus, which is important. So when you communicate with somebody as the leadership instructor, we, we call it name, command, volume at the program. We say name, command, volume, use the person's name, give the command that you want and use some volume. So that helps get through that. Another component that's going to let that filter is going to filter out in the world around you is threat. That's number one, right? That's the number one thing. We're literally programmed to observe the threat to try to avoid it. And then if there is no threat, then we go into that parasympathetic, let's rest, digest, reproduce, push on our species. So it's interesting. It's important to understand that stuff. And But the other component of the RAS is going to be subjective. It's what we train it to look for. And this is why an optimist will always be an optimist until something happens or a pessimist will always be a pessimist because we're not looking at the same reality. We're looking at the reality through the lens of the RAS that we've programmed, whether we know it or not. Sometimes it's from our conditioning as kids or whatnot. Or, but in law enforcement, the military and whatnot, when you're constantly looking at human suffering, human suffering, human suffering, that gets magnified in your filter, whereas that's all you see. And so it, it can be tricky because the reality of you're only looking at one little speck, but that's how our brains are programmed. And then when you're given all that negative stimulus, it's, you're going to even believe it more. So that makes you want to divide, isolate, move away from people. And so that's such a common thing with veterans and first responders. And so positive psychology is really the opposite of psychology in the last hundred years has been about mental illness. So taking someone that's maybe at like a negative five and hailing them back to neutral and then pushing them back out to society. Um, and positive psychology is like, let's study what makes people flourish. Let's study what makes people be at their best and be happy and have well-being and performance and engagement and all these things. In its infancy, maybe 20 years as a field, but it's done incredible work for the coaching fields and whatnot. And we have a lot of work to go, you know, because people hear psychology and instantly they clam up, especially folks in the military and law enforcement, because that was like a requisite. I couldn't get in unless I passed the psych test. So like psych, that's a threat to me. But I, I had the pleasure of, again, working with a performance psychologist, which reframed that for me. And then, you know, all the teams I've worked with since that all have performance psychology on board. And then, as you and I know, the coaching industry that's built on good psychology, good positive psychology is really making positive change in the world. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, it absolutely did. And I always say we have to plan like a, an optimist, but work like a pessimist. We have to have an optimistic outlook about what we're trying to accomplish, but also be willing to say this is the reality. Sometimes it's not always what we want, but almost like what you're saying, even from a mindset perspective, if I'm surrounded by all this negativity all the time, then it feels like I have to escape it. But if I'm just choosing to see some of the positivity by default, I'm vicariously making the correct decisions. I'm naturally allowing my RES to filtering out the stuff I don't want. And by choosing to do that and by making that conscientious decision, and sometimes, again, we have to say it verbally. Sometimes we have to write it down. Sometimes we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say this I am statement to override that. But once we have, now we can at least have that awareness and I'll say, oh, I'm doing it again. It doesn't mean it's going to change overnight, but once you can do that, now you can say, okay, I at least acknowledge this. And sometimes you try to push it away. That's fine. But 
once you have that initial beginning, that becomes sort of that building block. That's that foundation. And now you can build fundamentally anything that you want if you're willing to continue to do that work. And it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but sometimes, like you said, sometimes we plant the seed with this conversation or you, we plant the seed when we see somebody in our profession that's going through a hard time or they're succeeding, then they're able to use these things. But the idea is we allow it to cultivate, we allow it to grow. And then whenever we're ready, it kind of appears before us. And now we can start to take those steps. But by making the conscientious decision to understand that there's the potential there, that in and of itself can give us an optimistic standpoint that we may not have seen any other time, whether it be, like you said, in a war zone, in law enforcement, or even in our own lives. And back to that problem-solving kind of idea, what's the classic quandary? It's like, oh, I come home and my wife said this happened, and it's hard to tell her how to fix it. It's like, she doesn't need you to tell her how to fix it. She wants you to just listen to her, or she wants you to just have a conversation and just be there for her, or just give her a hug, or just let her cry, or give her a high five because she did something great. It's like, it doesn't necessarily black or white. It isn't necessarily, it's either a threat or it's not. It's not necessarily a sympathetic or parasympathetic, but yet, especially if we live in that world where it has been for the last 12 years or 12 hours, and now we come home, it's hard for us to shut that off. And like you said, we have to be willing to put the armor down. There's a time for it. Absolutely. But there's absolutely a time when we need to put it down to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to give to those people because the armor protects us, but it also doesn't allow other things to come out. And sometimes those are the most important things that our family and our loved ones need. 100% Mark, you nailed it with that. The one kind of technique I share that's been really popular and kind of has moved the needle with that, when you say put the armor down, I call it the shift change visualization. And essentially it's just when you need to be your best as in the role you're in today, maybe your best as husband, dad, family member, whatever, maybe it's different. So how do we change roles, right? And so I use this shift change visualization. It's useful for folks in law enforcement, military, first responders, business community. It's useful for anybody that cares about being at their best for the people that they care about. And so really, it's just you're going to go home somewhere safe, close your eyes, take some nice deep breaths, do some box breathing, get your heart rate down, right? Bring your heart rate down to that parasympathetic, you know, that rest, digest, calm state. And then I do a visualization where I envision what I look like optimally coming through the door through my daughter's eyes, who's two feet tall. So I envision myself, my big goofy self walking through the door. How do I want to look when she's coming through that door? And then I don't walk in until I feel like I can walk through like that, you know? And my mentality with that was always, Hey, if I get taken out in five years, 10 years, whatever it is, I know that her memory of me is probably going to be that coming through the door, seeing her for the first time every day. And it's, it's such a small window of time, but what do most of us do when we're in that focus mode? We're running, we're nervous systems up, or we're calling people and we're probably on the phone, finishing a conversation, walking in the door, but then, hey, we need to get settled. And so kids are coming up to see you, family senior, and you just, I just need 10 minutes, give me 10 minutes. And you know what? That was an opportunity for a first impression. And we just came in and kind of lost an opportunity there. So it was powerful when I started implementing that when I was still you know, doing the shift work. And, and it's been, I've shared it with a bunch of folks who, who has really changed for them. So I think, you know, anyone listening, that because the end of the day you're on your deathbed what matters most is the relationships and when you're sitting there and you're not going to remember the accolades and other things you're going to remember the relationships and was i my best and did i show up with my values and did i make genuine connections and that's what matters it's just just bottom line sometimes we can't increase the quantity of time we spend with family and people we love sometimes it could be maybe five minutes but let's increase the quality of it and we can do so by you know creating habits that 
Well, when we get to those occasions, we're going to fall back in our habits and we can kind of walk through the door with intention and, and try to be the best we can. And then the days we can't, it's okay, man. Deploy some self-compassion and do your best tomorrow. Yeah. And quality has a quantity all of its own. So if we can be aware of that, then there's a lot more we could get from that. The people that I've seen that have been incredibly successful, there's usually a direct correlation to the amount of adversity that they've experienced and worked through and then their level of success. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that we see that they get hit with some sort of adversity and then that's kind of artificially where it arrests their development. They're no longer able to evolve or change or grow. Can you tell us about an adversity that you went through that at the time you felt like you weren't going to be able to get through, but once you did, you were able to look back and see those opportunities? That's a great question. Early on in life, just different adversity. You know, you look at when you're young, you believe, you watch the TVs and the things and you believe that life is a certain way and you have the mom and you have the dad and you have the beavers and all the things that you see. My life was different. I had my parents did the best they could, but I had a lot of other folks that stepped in to help. And so that, you know, I think at a young age, probably feeling like something's wrong with me or not good enough or whatever, because I didn't have the thing I saw on that through the conditioning. You know, so that was probably set me off of, of why I was a high performer so much is because I, I thought I had to perform in order to get the love and validation. So this is one thing I want people to understand is love doesn't mean it need to be earned, right? It's the only thing that doesn't need to be earned. I think everything else needs to be earned. Accolades, success, it all needs to be earned. You, you got to put the work in. Like I say, you know, we have a song with that we sing with our kids is we'll be proud of you when you do your best, but we're going to love you just because, right? And that's what we need to deploy to ourselves. If you want to love your family, you need to learn how to look in the mirror, look within, and learn how to love every part of yourself before you can you can do that. Because you know our relationships with ourselves are, are going to be foundational to all the rest of them. So if we don't love every part of ourselves, even the parts that we're not proud of, then we can't be our best and give that love that we, we might want to give, you know, to our kids and, and to our sons and daughters and wives and and whatnot. So that was probably like an early adversity. I think after that, it's funny. I don't think of critical incidents as adversity, right? Because it's just, you train, train, you train, and then you show up and you do your job and you debrief it and you figure out how you can get better. And so there's plenty of that and plenty of people trying to kill you and, and <laughs> do all those things. And and I don't look at that as, it's funny, it doesn't hit the same way that I think maybe the last couple of years, you know, on the personal side of the house, we my sister had diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago and, and she's, you know, still fighting today. I think that we had some health issues with our children. My daughter was having seizures and stuff like that. So I think things that I feel like I had no control over and I couldn't do anything to help, that was probably some of the adversity for me that was really challenging kind of, for me to kind of deal with. But yeah, so it's funny. It's not the life or death stuff or the high stakes stuff. It's, it's more of the, you know, the personal relationship stuff where this is where the you know, stoicism and the philosophy of Buddhism comes in of accepting what you can't control and taking committed action towards what you can. And, you know, my personal philosophy I've come up with through my studies and whatnot is uh, I call it ABC. I'm trying to share this with as many people as possible. It's ABC, the ABC mindset, align, believe, and compete. And align is awareness and acceptance. So in real time, ART, in real time, can I accept what I can't control? And if I can accept it, then I'm aligned with it. It takes awareness. So that's step one. So if you don't practice any awareness skills, like you need to start there. So become aware of what's showing up inside of me, what's showing up outside of me in the environment. And then can I accept it as if I chose it, even if I don't like it, then that means I'm aligned with it. So at, th at that place, I can consciously operate now. Now I'm in a powerful place. So now the next is B is believe. 
I've learned in you know doing violent future detective, a profiler, studying folks that kind of do some some heinous things, and just on the human behavior level, it's believe behavior become. So what I believe about myself, what I believe about the world, dictates how I'm going to behave in it, and how I behave over time dictates who I'm going to become and what becomes of my circumstances. So there's a lot of work there. What do I believe? What do I believe about myself in real time? Can I believe in what's possible for me and for my team, for my loved ones? Can I believe in that? Focus on that. And that's going to be involved with the values, right, Peace? And then the C is compete. And I love the word compete. I've been competing since I was a kid. I was competing maybe for some reasons that were to move away from the feelings of inadequacy as a young kid. Now, I have a kind of a crisp definition for it. And it's to compete with my potential in the presence of others. My potential to move toward my best, move toward my values, move toward what I believe is possible. So align, believe, compete. And that's kind of my mindset philosophy that's kind of moved the needle for me and clients I've shared it with. And and that's kind of come from that adversity that you asked me about because I still deal with it a lot. I deal with the anxious thoughts and heaviness and I always will. And this isn't something that will ever be you know accomplished. There's no destination with this thing, right? It's just learning the skills to move toward what's most important and to kind of deal with what shows up that I don't have control over. And can I become aware of when I am wasting time kind of spinning my wheels on things that I, I just can't control and then refocusing to the believe and the compete component. So thank you for the question because it reminded me of, you know, kind of my own personal philosophy that's come from it. I love the answer. Again, adversity defines us. It defines us not because it tells us who we are, but adversity burns away all the shit, all the fake stuff, all the lies, all the things that society told us that we were before we understood that. And when we're down to that naked part of our soul, it's scary and we feel very vulnerable. But Again, until we take that armor off, we can't really see what's under that. And even what you were saying too about the relationship that we have with ourselves, our internal dialogue is so powerful. And we have to be aware that the way that I'm talking to myself, eventually I will speak to those closest to me in that same kind of capacity. So if I'm calling myself a piece of shit because I didn't do something and then something happens and I get angered and I lash out, what am I doing? I'm simply just taking what I'm already thinking and then unnecessarily throwing that upon a person and they become collateral damage to something that they don't deserve because I don't have the wherewithal or the balls to actually do the deep introspection to exercise that poison from me. And that's why all this stuff is so important. It's so powerful. And to be a great leader is to understand that empathy though, right? And to realize that I came to realize when I first started doing detective work and I started seeing these cases, I noticed I was so emotionally driven, right? When I see that a rape happened or I'm blinded by the thing. And I'm like, I just want to get this person in an alley and, and just that's it. And then I, I realized how I wasn't useful <laughs> for the job I was doing. I need to be able to you know, zoom out big picture, see the big picture and stay you know, mission focused, value focused, as opposed to emotionally driven or reactive. So having that empathy in real time, I think everyone, every human, does the best they can at their level of conditioning, intellect, and consciousness. And what I mean by that is what they've been told. I mean, until you learn to consciously operate and you get that self-awareness, a lot of people believe what they believe, what they were told when they were 16 and they die with those same beliefs. And although they went around the sun, you know, 60, 70 times, they had no growth and wisdom because they didn't do any work to kind of audit what they were told and, and ask why and be curious. And, and so I noticed that. And then, you know, intellect is going to be, you know, your ability to kind of use, you know, use your mind on purpose and whatnot and, and grow there. And then the consciousness part is, for me, consciousness is the awareness that we're all interconnected. I'm a spiritual guy. I was born Catholic, raised Catholic, the whole thing. But I believe that all the kind of religious teachers are all pointing towards the same kind of truths. And, 
if they had a platform like this way back in the day, maybe we'd have this sorted out, but it's all pointed to that interconnectedness, right? We're all, we're all one. And if I feel like I am disconnected and I'm over here an individual and I, you know, don't believe I'm worth much or whatnot, then I probably don't, I can hurt you, right? I don't believe much that you're the same or disconnected. That consciousness is really just seeing that interconnectedness. And now there's times, right? And we know it, human behavior is messy, right? And there's times where you have to use violence to move toward higher values and protect people. And that kind of comes into that, that warrior in the garden mentality. On the day to day, if you have that belief that we're all interconnected, you're going to do your best to you know, kind of show up in those relationships and get the most out of them and help others more so than you, you know, hurt them because whatever you have going on inside you, does that resonate with you? It absolutely does. And it's absolutely true. I mean, it all comes down to that at the highest level, all these teachers, all these philosophies, all these religions are, they're battling semantics. It comes down to, can I see the interconnectedness? Can I take responsibility and accountability of what I'm doing? And whether it be a person that says it from a Buddhist standpoint, or Jocko's talking about extreme ownership or, Tom, Bill, you talking about everything is my fault, or Jerry Colonna saying, in what way have I been complicit in these things that I claim that I do not want? Irrespective of the source, the truth is still the same. So once you can see that and you can begin to internalize that and allow that to influence your decisions or influence your lack of decisions, it gives you an opportunity to begin to do the work, to move towards the things that we want. If nothing else, we are not moving towards the things that are harming us or other people in the process. And I think that that's why what you're doing is so important. And that's why your tag is a conscious operator, because that's what we have to do. You've got a nonprofit and you're also the director of human performance of another organization. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those as we wind down and put a bow on this? And I know that we've been on the call for a while, but I think those are important things for people to know more about. Yeah, absolutely. So One Tribe is my nonprofit that I'm currently building out. And it kind of stemmed from feeling like when I was doing the detective work and my kind of law enforcement career came towards the end there, I had that kind of awareness, that bigger picture awareness that I felt like I was constantly just responding to problems that have already happened over and over and over again, as opposed to being some part of some sort of solution in some small way. And so, you know, one tribe, really the, the idea is to connect and develop servant leaders. So adults who are serving their world hard first from law enforcement, military, business, sport, connect them with youth leaders, youth athletes who want to do the same. And the idea is, you know, kind of, there's no power dynamic here. We're teammates and let's come together and learn how to optimally lead ourselves because everybody talks about, they want to be a great leader in these positions, but people that are in the highest levels of leadership, a lot of them don't know how to lead themselves, their own mind, their own body. And so the idea here of, you know, one tribe is let's use elements from positive psychology, neuroscience, health sciences, leadership development. Let's use these as a, as a guide to guide purpose-driven relationships. So if you and I have paired up, you know, we'll have a mission that week. We'll learn a little bit of science, have a mission to do for ourselves. And then we just connect and talk about it. And then we grow in that way. So I mentored for a long time, you know, with the typical mentorships and a lot of it's just, Hey, you know, DJ, here's Joe, go figure it out. And you go get ice cream and whatnot. And you build a relationship over time and it's important. But the idea here is I want to create lasting change. And I think you know, in the inner city and in the country, everywhere, there are young leaders who are heroes waiting to be taught how to lead and they want to lead. And And I want to create connections and relationships that are purposeful because the government is not going to change inner cities. There's just not, right? Who's going to change inner cities are the young leaders that are from those cities who might not want to escape them. Maybe they want to stay there and make it better. And so if we can pair them up with other servant leaders from the community that also want to do the same, and this is a long-term thing. Let's build some relationships because if you're 18, you have influence, 
you're probably going to have influence in some level when you're 28 and 38 and 48. So let's start investing in our relationships and investing in education that matters. Like how do I breath work and mindset work and all these things that you sh- we should learn in school. And I hope we do one day. These are all involved in kind of the process here for One Tribe. So we have an app developed that's under construction now, but it's in the app store and essentially that's starting social media over. So it's going to be a closed circuit away from big tech and just a kind of private spot to start over with just servant leaders, those who want to serve the world hard first and, and be their best, learn how to be at their best and build community. So we get that in the works. And what's the name of the nonprofit? It's called One Tribe. Fantastic. And the kind of vision of that is, you know, if you zoom out, look at the world, obviously we're all one big tribe. We've through evolution, we realize that. But more importantly, this is for the leaders who are committed to making their world better, essentially servant leaders. And let's connect all of them. And I think that's how we're going to make lasting change in the world is by finding those folks and then pairing them up with young leaders who don't have the platform or the ability or the resources to become their best and then just build purposeful relationships. Because I think divide is what causes so many issues. I saw that over years and years in law enforcement, just people divided from each other. Because if we're divided, we can have all these horrible thoughts about each other. And they're true because we haven't proved them otherwise. And then you have these devices that are telling you what to believe. And a lot of it's driven on division. And so yeah, one tribe is let's bring people together. Let's bring people who want to work hard, be their best self and serve something bigger than themselves, build some relationships over time and create a platform where folks can come and support each other, help each other, push each other. So that's kind of idea. It's in construction now, but you know, it's a passion project for me, for sure. I love that. And for those of you that I don't want to say you don't understand, I'm saying that sometimes a person tries to be a leader around 17, 18, 19, and they have that initial exuberance and that enthusiasm and that drive. And then if they get beat down by bureaucracy or red tape or the bullshit of society, now this person that could be an incredible leader in the long term sustainably, it's kind of beat out of them. And now that opportunity is gone. So doing something with one tribe, like you're saying, for these young people to see, wow, this person, I can be where DJ is, but I can do it in less time. If I listen to him, he's just a little bit further down the road than I am. He's fallen down a few more times. He's got a little bit more experience. But if I listen to him, he can compact that time for me. He's willing to invest in me and he believes in me. And then we have a bunch of other people like that. Absolutely. That's what we need more of. As a matter of fact, that's what a lot of organizations and even schools are claiming to do, but yet the grand scheme of things, again, it's about actions, not words. And so you're acting with this. So I love that. Yep. And to just kind of add a little bit of color to that as well, doing the, you know thousands of investigations, interviewing thousands of people and violent crimes, folks treating everybody as the human being that they are. Over time, I use what I call tactical empathy, trying to understand what someone's seeing, believe, behave, become. I realize that if I believe that I'm not worthy of the love, acceptance, whatnot, you know, and I believe that at best, all I can do is have some success in the street. And I believe that I don't have anybody. So I have someone that's going to pull me in like the gangs, right? They give them belonging and they give them a way to serve and identity. And so there's folks that have all this potential to be great leaders and they're being the best that they can be at their level of consciousness with their level of intellect conditioning. And my hope is, you know, over time doing that work was just, it made me sad more than anything. Cause I felt like at first, this is my dream job. Then it turned into okay, this work is so necessary. Folks that are doing violent things need to be separate from others and let's fix it. Let's create a system that will dissolve this problem. Back to that problem-solving mentality, You know, most problems will dissolve if you upgrade the system. However, problem-solving is job security for a lot of folks. And But one tribe, let's create a better system, a system on connection, on accountability, on making each other better and learning a lot of the science that's available to us that a lot of folks don't have access to or aren't willing to look at. Absolutely. And then you're also the director of human performance of something else. I didn't get all of that. Yep. 
So that's an organization called Wellness for Warriors. Wellness for Warriors. Yep. So that's an organization. We have multiple resources. Uh, peer support is a great one for anyone serving in the military, serving in law enforcement, first responder communities, 100% confidential. We have clinicians on board. We have a lot of great resources. We're working on more kind of proactive training and whatnot this year we'll be putting out. I lead mindfulness training, hybrid and virtual training there with them and some mental performance products as well that we'll have coming out. So that's another organization. Again, if you serve either in military, law enforcement, first responder community, check out the Instagram and the site. And we're there, you know, 24 seven, there's someone that has been where you have been, understands kind of what you're going through, has, has done some work themselves, has been shaped by that adversity. Boy, they could be a great teammate for you. Completely confidential if you'd like to reach out there. I love that. DJ Dolan, thank you for all the work that you're doing as a leader, as a heartfelt leader as a servant leader for the work you're doing with One Tribe, Wellness for Warriors, all this stuff we can find if we follow you on social media or go to your website? Absolutely. So social media is conscious underscore operator for Instagram. And then you know I'm on, on LinkedIn, DJ Dolan. My nonprofit's onetribeoneheart.org. And then Wellness for Warriors is wellnessforwarriors.live. But we can put that in the show notes for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the mission that you're on. Thank you so much for being the leader that you are. And I look forward to seeing what you continue to do with this leadership. Marcus, it's been an honor and a privilege to connect with you. And I hope it was an authentic conversation. And I hope some folks can pull some value out of it to integrate into their life immediately. I'm certain they will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com. Join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle and get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.